Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Tom Griever. Tom is a Senior Director of Product Design at Indigo, an agricultural company that improves farmers' profitability, environmental sustainability, and consumer health through the use of nature-based and digital technologies. At Indigo, Tom leads UX and design teams that are busy creating software to change the way the food system works, including a new grain marketplace and several tools that aim to make farming more sustainable. Tom has also previously been the VP of Product and Design at Handled, where he led the product strategy and CX teams who were creating category-leading software for the home services and moving industry. He was also the Director of UX and then the VP of UX and Design at Batovi, a remote-first digital consultancy where he led teams to develop new web app experiences for companies such as Apple, Walmart, Levi Strauss and Lowe's. A celebrated and experienced product and design leader, Tom is best known for his influential book, Articulating Design Decisions, a book that has helped tens of thousands of designers around the world to achieve greater career success and greater impact through design. The success of Articulating Design Decisions has seen Tom invited to deliver workshops at major companies such as Microsoft, HubSpot, and the BBC, and to speak at popular conferences, including the PUSH conference in Germany, JAM in Spain, and UX London in the United Kingdom. And now Tom is here with me for this conversation on Brave UX. Tom, hello, and a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here, Tom. And Tom, I noticed that you're actually dressed fairly casually and regularly for this conversation, yet I understand it's not uncommon to find you in a meeting in a costume of some description. Is this it's, true? <laughs> it's true. So the word word has gotten out, I suppose. Uh, I have been known to lead or show up to meetings in costume occasionally, whether that is, you know... Uh, Mario, I, I think I showed up to one meeting as Mario. I've been, you know, talk show host, game show host, plenty, plenty of times. But uh, yeah, you, you never, you never quite know. But not, not today. If I, if I'd thought about it in advance, maybe I could have pulled something together. What is it about the act of dressing up for those meetings? What is it that you're trying to provoke or or achieve as a result of that? Yeah. So right. The great question, because it's not costumes just for the sake of costumes or like just for the sake of fun, although it is fun. It, it's, it's a lot of fun. And um, I think people enjoy and, and appreciate it. But, you know, most of the time we're trying to, you know, communicate some important message to our teams, right, to help them engage on you know, business goals or strategy or, you know, anything else that, that the company is trying to achieve. And, and so sometimes the best way to do that is with 
something that's a little more interesting, unexpected, right? Something that would surprise you. There, there's always a connection to the content, right? Like it's not, it's not just a costume for the sake of the costume, but it, it's also to try to make that connection to what we're trying to help people remember. So like, just as an example, this is actually a non-costume example. One of my uh, product partners and I recently devised an anthropomorphic cow named uh, Robbie, who would uh, now has a Slack account at our company <laughs> and is interacting with uh, the team. And um, Robbie is uh, Robbie's sole job is to report out on the uh, the KPIs that we're tracking uh, for the the coming year. And actually, the word or the name Rob R O B B each letter represents one of the four KPIs that we're tracking. So. In a lot of meetings, we're expecting Robbie to, to show up and um, tell us how we're doing. And, you know, it seems silly, maybe even a little bit juvenile <laughs> at times, but it's incredible how much more engaged people can be and asking the right questions and remembering the things that we want them to remember, right? And even just be ex being excited to show up to a meeting, right? I mean, I think we all go to a lot of the same meetings that kind of run together. And so I, I think anything we can do to break that monotony and have fun in the process is probably well worth the risk. So, Yes, certainly seems like you're bringing some delight and also some uh, intrigue and some memorability to people that you're exposing to things like Robbie and, you know, yourself dressed up in costumes. It certainly would be hard to forget the purpose or the point of that meeting I'm imagining. Right, now, for sure. I wanted to ask you about something which is perhaps a little bit esoteric, and that is your LinkedIn banner. I noticed it was a, it looks like a photo of the cosmos. And I was wondering, yeah. what is the significance of that image to you? You know, <laughs> I think there's like infinite possibilities, right? And I, I don't, I don't want to pretend like I thought about it too hard, um, but I'm <laughs> very much intrigued by astronomy and space in general and just like the vast expanse and seemingly infinite amount of you know stars and planets that there are out there. And I find um, and actually the one that you're you're mentioning is a, is a Hubble uh, image. And I'm looking forward to replacing that someday, maybe with some from the James Webb <laughs> Space Telescope. But I, I just I, I love seeing those images because it is a reminder of just how small uh, we are, right? And as much as we can get worked up about work and about the problems that we're trying to solve and the change that we're trying to see in the world, which are good things, right? It's still a very, very small part of like a larger picture. I just think it's an important reminder. Maybe this is a long bow to draw, but thinking about what we were just talking about regarding costumes and introducing mm -hmm. some levity into work and some memorability of things that are important, like metrics, and also what you were touching on there about the scale of our significance and the, the, re the reminder that shots of the cosmos like that give us about uh, the perspective that we, the perspectives we can choose to adopt and change. Um, as we like. I'm, I'm sensing or I'm wondering whether or not there is a just an overall lightness to the work that you're trying to introduce, given how serious we can all be and wrapped up in the day to day of what it is that we're doing and the things that sit outside of work, like family and politics and all the other things that make for a very busy and um, sometimes disconnected human experience. 
Right. Exactly. Well, and I, I mean, that last part that you said there, that human experience, right? We, and I think, you know, it's interesting even in product design and in tech where, you know, a lot of us work, we specifically are tasked with designing for that human experience. And I don't know that we're really doing ourselves um, any favors by, you know, designing our work lives and our conversations and our routines the way that we do, right? And yet we have, you know, kind of the training and the power and the insight to be able to kind of create the kinds of experiences that we want to be having at work. I really, I really value that for sure. Like I, as, as much as I, I, I probably am a, a serious person, you know, much of the time, I, I always try to push myself to find those moments to not be so serious because if we're, if we're not having fun, if we're not enjoying the work that we're doing, right? And it doesn't have to be as silly as, you know, wearing a costume. It can just be enjoying and being fulfilled by the things that, that we're doing. That's incredibly important. And I, and I think we, we, we have the, or should we, we should believe we have the, the agency and the power to, to make those things happen not only for ourselves, but to influence and affect the people around us too, right? And I think, I think we sometimes underestimate how much influence we have on everyone else. Bringing us back down to, to earth now and also into a territory which I believe is a great source of fulfillment for you, which is your family. And you've described yourself, and I'll quote you now, as a dedicated family man and toddler wrestler with five entrepreneurial kids and a marriage worth bragging about. Now, first of all, five kids, that is some serious, that's a serious commitment. uh, And I imagine it takes a lot of time and energy. How do you manage to make that work with a very busy work life as well? Yeah, I mean, we all make time for the things that are important. And I think it just comes down to, you know, the fact that that, that's a priority for me and for my wife and and for our family. Right. And so sure we spend all our time with, with our kids. Um, but we love doing that. We love seeing the impact that they can have on the world. Um, I should probably update that because I don't even have any toddlers in my house anymore. (laughs) My oldest (laughs) My oldest is 19. And then, I mean, I have four teenagers basically, and then an eight-year-old, right? So they're all in kind of a different phase of life now, but they are entrepreneurial. And it, and it, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if as a culture, we really appreciate as much as we could the influence that, that having and raising families and kids has on like the rest of the world. And I totally get that, like, you know, Having a family isn't for a lot of folks, and that's totally cool. But from my experience, like being able to see these kids grow up and become fascinating, wonderful, smart, intelligent, helpful, caring people, right? Like that's the kind of change I want to see in the world, right? Like my my impact is limited to just me, right? But I can I can multiply that impact through my kids and and my family and my kids are doing amazing things. I, I'm shocked almost sometimes. Maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe that maybe that's not uh, believing the best about them. But it, but it's always uh, <laughs> inspiring. I should say it's inspiring to see uh, kids and the way that they grow up and and learn things and do things and and exceed 
our expectations. And um, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience for me and my wife. I wouldn't trade it for the world. What influence or impact, if any, has your family life and your marriage had on the the way that you've developed as a leader of people at work? Mm. Yeah, uh, it's been a, it's had a tremendous impact, I think, because one, when you have five kids, especially when they're all young, and, and we, there was a period of our life when they were all really little, and, and they were all toddlers, and we were wrestling a lot. You know, you you learn very quickly how to um, manage your mental capacity such that you can uh, take on multiple different things. At, you know, not not at once, right? But in a, in, a, in a serial fashion that allows you to do diligence with with everything, right? It's it's tough to go to work and to come home and you know meet the needs of one person to then try to help another person, right? And I, I think when you do that for years, I mean, sometimes that is very much what it feels like as a leader, right? On a, on a, on a team where you're you're going from one one-on-one to the next one-on-one to a meeting about a budget to a big presentation that you've been preparing for. I mean, back to back to back to back to back. And that context switching and and need to always be present for that person, right, um, is incredibly important, right? If I, if, I, if I go in to my home after work and one of my kids really needs to like talk through a thing or wants my attention or praise or whatever it is. It could be totally selfish. It could be something totally practical. If I'm not present, right? If I'm not there, that has potential to damage that relationship, right? And it's no different as a leader when I go to one meeting where I found out that our budget is cut or that project is canceled, right? Or like big things happen and I go into a one-on-one with someone on my team who genuinely needs my help to be unblocked or to get some advice or to like move forward with their career, right? Like I I have to make that change and to be present for them to really make sure that I'm serving them well. And so I think you know, doing that in, in a, in a family environment has been a huge, uh, contributor to my success, I think as, as a leader. Yeah. I, I had my son come up to me, it would have been maybe two weeks ago and I was too busy and I'm an only child. So I find it very easy to stay inside my own head and focus on my own needs and being married and having my son has certainly been a, a wonderful journey of letting go of a whole bunch of, uh, selfish, um, tendencies that I have had over the years. And he asked me to play with him. Uh, this is in the evening, early evening, and I was still, I think they'd come home early actually, and I was still working. And I said to him, I think I said, and this is, is terrible, I think I said, no, I don't. And then immediately I was like, man, that's a really bad dad moment that I've just had and had to reframe it to, I do want to play with you, I just can't play with you right now. And what, I think what I heard you articulate there is that having such a busy family life and needing to be present for everyone when they need you is a really good reminder that leadership, whether it be within a family or within an organization, it's not about you and what you need. That, that's right. And I don't, I don't intend to infantilize our relationships with our coworkers and our peers and, and, and the people that report to us by any stretch. I think it's a good, I think it's a good parallel because it is a reminder that 
we have the opportunity to have the same kind of impact on our peers and colleagues at, at work, right? And it doesn't even have to be someone that is within our reporting structure. It can be someone who is just another person in the organization, right? Like we have the opportunity to influence and, and help people. I think we could do more to recognize how impactful we can be on other people in our organizations, but really just all over. And it was convenient for me that I have a family and I have kids that kind of force that in my own life. But I think everyone has the opportunity to be intentional in their relationships like, like that. I remember an author called David Baker. He wrote a business book called the, I think it's called The Business of Expertise. And I listened to his podcast called Two Bobs from time to time. And I've heard him describe that moment sort of at, you know, at the end of your life when you're reflecting back on your career or perhaps that perhaps you've actually passed away and pe other people are reflecting back on you. It's not the projects that you delivered that they're going to remember or the metrics that you were chasing or that you managed to hit or didn't hit. It's actually the way that you made them feel when you were working with them. That is the thing that people remember about you. Yeah. And I, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but if, if we tie that back to the costumes or Robbie the cow, you know, those kinds of interactions that people have had with me over the years, I hope will be a reminder to them that, I was, I was human with them. I was real with them, right? Like I, I genuinely wanted to engage with people in a way that would help them be more effective in their jobs and in their roles. And that, you know, that's the kind of lasting impact that I, I hope to have as well. I will sometimes even conjure up uh, what uh, one person on my team recently called uh, UX sermons, <laughs> where, you know, we have our regular, you know, kind of team meetings and we're going through work and we're talking about upcoming stuff, right? And I try to set aside the last, I don't know, three minutes, you know, maybe even as much as five to just provide some measure of kind of inspiration for, for folks, right? Like, hey, we're dealing with this really challenging partner in the business right now, but like, look at that bigger picture or like, hey, I know that, you know, we didn't get the result that we wanted from this project over here, but keep in mind, we've got this over there, right? Like, I think... It, it can feel, as the person like delivering that message, it can feel a little awkward, if not kind of cheesy in the moment. But I think it tends to land pretty well on people. They, they appreciate the acknowledgement that like, hey, we have these challenges, but we have so much to look forward to, right? And I think reminding people of where we're headed and how this contributes to a bigger picture of our organization uh, maturing in UX or product design process, right? Like it's so easy for people to look at the here and now and forget those things and be uh, uh, sad about the current state of where we are as an organization, right? And I think part of my job is to remind, is to point to like where we're headed and to remind them and encourage them and, and inspire them. As, as awkward as it can feel, I think it's still really effective at, at helping other people really feel that, right? To know that we're, we're doing important work and we're doing it together as a team and we're headed in the right direction. Mm. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with Andy Budd and Andy and I got talking about designers' tendency to feel the need to perfect their work and as a result of that feeling that even when good things happen, 
you know, the team delivers a great project or a feature or whatever it may be, we have this, and again, generalizing here, but we have this tendency to look at that and think of the 20% that we weren't able to achieve instead of the 80% that we were. And he was very much echoing similar sentiments to you that it's important as the leader to actually ground the team in what has been achieved to date, but also, um, you know, what we need to focus on next. So that's really right. an important reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it's never going to be a perfect process, right? We're never going to get that hundred percent. I know on my team recently, we had this experience with a, you know, we, because we're a startup um, and a, and a, and a smaller team, we don't, we don't have a lot of mature processes in, in, in place. Right. And even if we did, uh, we would have to reinvent them every six to 12 months anyway, because things are, are changing, you know, a lot more rapidly, um, in, in our environment. But we back in, uh, you know, like April or May of, of last year, we kicked off an initiative to do some early discovery work on a part of our customer bases, like workflow that we didn't understand as well. And, you know, prior to doing that, our organization had not done that as much. You know, we were a lot more focused on like, hey, you know, here's a problem. Here's a solution. Someone create a UI for it. We'll throw it out there, see what happens and maybe do some user testing along the way. So this was intended to be the beginning of kind of like a, a cycle where we could get people in our organization accustomed to how we would tease out the problems that we need to solve and how we would, you know, eventually arrive at those solutions. And, and, um, we spent six months on this initiative and we did a lot of great work, a lot of great research. We had great data coming out of it. Um, but the way that the timing landed at the end of the year and when goals were kind of like set and decisions were being made for the roadmap, by the time we actually wrapped up that project and kind of delivered the final readout, I think a lot of people on the team felt a little bit like, oh man, we didn't, we didn't really get to include that, uh, those learnings and the planning for the roadmap yet. Like we, we just, we just kind of missed the mark there. Right. And I remember telling them at the time, like, no, like it, like, yes, of course, that was valuable learning and insights that we have. And we absolutely will use them. Maybe not right now, but we will eventually. But even if we didn't, even if we took all that work and threw it away, right, it would be valuable just for having created the cycle and the habit and the awareness for everyone else across the organization to understand, like, this is how we want to work. Like, this is a part of our process for understanding, you know, our customers' pain points and how it can and should influence the direction of the roadmap. And so I told them at the time, I was like, and now we just finished this one, we're going to do it again, right? And that one will be a little bit better, right? And a little bit more mature and a little bit closer to the roadmap. And then when that one's done, we're going to do it again. But like building those habits take time. We're not going to do it perfectly the first time out of the gate. We should be celebrating the fact that we had so much support across the organization for the fact that we were even doing it at all. Right. And now people are talking about it and they're already asking us about the next one and when we're doing it and what it's going to be called and what it's going to be focused on. Right. Like building that momentum and that energy, that that was as much the exercise as it was the actual insights and in influencing the, the roadmap. Tell me about the work that went into the point before you got the approval to do that first generative project. Um, what do you mean? The work 
before it's, that. It's, it's often easy for us to look back at a project like that and go, that was successful. And I have no doubt that it is. But you had to do something in order to get, you, you spoke of broad support across the board for that type of work. And I often hear designers talking about the difficulty in uh, convincing, and I know we'll come to articulating design decisions soon, uh, but convincing the business to invest in that earlier stage research, the stuff that's not mm. immediately tied to a product that's coming up or in market. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand the question. And the short answer to your que- to your question is that we branded it and we packaged it so that it was memorable. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think prior to this initiative, a lot of the work that we had done um, had been kind of one-off things, right? So we're going to do a little bit of discovery here. Uh, someone, you know, worked with one of our subject matter experts over there and we put together a deck and we had some ideas and we would do a readout at a different meeting. It was independent, separate, you know, measures of insight coming in from, you know, customers and subject matter experts and product people on the team. But they were, uh, you know, I don't know, every six or eight weeks, depending on what we were doing with research or where we were with, you know, different discovery work someone was working on that and sharing it out, right? But when they would do that, it just, it, it, it landed, I think, as like, oh, well, this is, this is that person who had some ideas about that thing. Isn't that nice? All right, well, let's go back to the roadmap now, right? <laughs> and, and, and we just struggled to get, you know, any traction with sort of these individual efforts. So what we did differently this time was we gave it a name, we said it was going to last six months. <laughs> and then I spent a majority of my effort socializing it among lots of different you know, leaders and parts of the organization for that six months, including getting our CEO to come to the final readout at the, at the very, very end of that project. We would make uh, what we called trailer videos, which were you know, either me or someone else on the team that was helping with the project give a brief like five minute recap of what we were doing or where it was. And it had the same brand name and, you know, kind of imagery and logos that kind of went along with it. And we would share these out. We had a dedicated Slack channel. We would send out the videos. I was sharing them with our leaders in the organization, including our CEO. So like people knew what was going on. They knew the name. And so you could say the name and people knew what you were referring to. Now, in reality, all we did, and I don't want to minimize it, right? But all we did was take what used to be multiple, I think, individual efforts and kind of put them in this container and, and, and package it up such that it was easy for people to point to and go, oh, yeah, that's that larger discovery effort that, that the team is, is working on, right? And I think, I think that, that that packaging is really what made it successful. And, and we put a timeline on it, too. We said, okay, it's going to be done by this date, right? And we could have just rolled right into the next one. Right. And just done a separate, you know, uh, you know, study over here or, you know, done a survey there or, you know, done some, you know, concepts with this one problem area over there. But instead we said, okay, no, like hard stop on that. And now we're going to devise and come up with a new one that we will then launch and kind of promote in in a similar way. So that, that internal promotion and getting people excited about it and sharing it out and making it simple for people to remember and know what it was that we were doing was really, really important. And actually on the topic of, uh, you know, using, you know, humor and levity, uh, what we called it was uh, Kopi Luwak was the name of this effort. 
And um, if you're not familiar with it, Kopi Luwak is the name of the most expensive uh, coffee bean in the world because it is harvested from uh, coffee cherries that were eaten by a wild Indonesian civet cat and harvested from the droppings of that cat. And so the reason that we named it that, and I and I had a whole thing in our initial trailer about like why we were calling it Kopi Luwak is because we were looking for the most valuable like coffee beans among a huge pile of crap, right? That we had all these problems, all these known pain points from our customers, a ton of different information to sort through. And we wanted to really take the time to go through it. And the name was funny and it was interesting. It had a tangible kind of representation. And in fact, I bought these packages of coffee and I mailed them out to some people on the team, like as a thank you for participating or as a reminder of the project, right? But like finding something that people could connect with and associate kind of the content of what we were trying to accomplish to like a creative, you know, expression of that, of the, of that project, I, I, I found to be very effective. Mm. So this is, there's several things in here. There's storytelling, like the Kopi Luwak story that you just told me. There's structure in terms of the way in which you approach the engagement with the other senior stakeholders, the way that you communicated back where you were, you, where you were at on a regular basis. There's also in here, there's a degree of bravery in terms of the level of transparency that it sounded like you were affording others in the company to to see what was happening with the design and the research as that was going on. Yeah. And the transparency thing, you know, and maybe I maybe highly value this more than a, a lot of folks, but and I, I feel like, you know, a common message for me on all my teams is, you know, to just share early and share often that the more visibility that we can give people into our team and our work and our processes, the better off we're going to be. And I know that a lot of designers are hesitant to do that. They don't want to share their work too early, right? I have, while I understand the sentiment that, you know, it, it can be difficult to feel like, oh, this is a work in progress or like I have to provide some measure of like disclaimer or context or I'll get the wrong kind of feedback or it may reflect poorly on me because I haven't thought through it well yet. Those I understand those risks and that feeling, um, but what I found is that when people see what we're working on, it actually gives them more confidence that we know what we're doing, that we're going to deliver on time, that the result is going to be really, really great, and people actually are less inclined to speak into our process and tell us how to do it because they can see it happening, right? And it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, people tend to fear what they don't know, what they can't see, right? And if our work is happening in a black box and people don't have access to it or they don't know where we're at with stuff, then they're going to be asking a lot more questions, right? Um, or if they're not asking questions, they're just sitting over there going, well, no idea where the team is on that thing. Oh, well, I guess I'll find out and then tell them they, they did it all wrong. Right. Whereas if you go the opposite direction and you open up everything, you actually have, a, I, I have found, you know, fewer questions and a lot more, a lot more confidence from people. So it's actually mitigating the risk of things getting derailed if you do the big reveal rather than the fear that designers have with, uh, exposing their work when it's unfinished and and then perceiving it as being risky. You know, I've, I've heard I've heard you previously talk about stakeholders and sociopaths in the same sentence, 
And just to give people some context here, uh, I, I believe you were ex- describing that the general population, roughly 4% of us are sociopathic, and that tendency is reflected uh, by, a, by a scale of four in executive ranks greater than the general population. But it's not that our, it's more likely that our stakeholders are actually suffering, you've said, from an unconscious form of bias rather than them actually being sociopathic. Now, knowing this is one thing. So knowing that a stakeholder is, is likely suffering from a bias and we've got some work to do here to close that is one thing. But knowing what to do about it is another. So what can designers do about it if they're having a difficult time convincing a stakeholder of something or they're receiving, you know, some erroneous feedback that really isn't connected to the purpose of the work? You know, what can designers do to unravel that and get things back on track? Yeah. So, you know, people tend to trust their own bias and their instincts over yours if they don't trust yours, right? Like, so if you've given a choice between you and me and I'm not too sure like about, about you or I don't necessarily have as much confidence in you and your skill and your ability, then I tend to rely on my own. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of these issues can be mitigated just by building trust. And, and that is a simple thing to say, but is really hard in practice because it requires building the relationship. So I like to describe it sometimes as a spectrum where, or maybe maybe a more appropriate word is more like a, a, a trust thermometer, right? Where you've got, you know, trust on one side and communication on the other. And if I have a very little bit of trust with someone, then it's going to require a lot of communication to really get support from them. If I have a great deal of trust, then the amount of deliberate communication I need to apply to that relationship is actually much, much smaller. And this is why things can happen so quickly in smaller organizations where we have more time to build stronger bonds. This is why a startup founded by, you know, two best friends can just text each other and say, hey, I'm going to do the thing. And they go, okay, sure. There's a high level of trust. And so there's less need for deliberate communication. So the more that you can focus on building trust and relationships with the people who you need to communicate with and whose support you need, the less deliberate effort you have to apply to actually, uh, you know, gaining that that trust and support in the process. And in your years as a leader in a position of needing to build that trust with your peers, what have you found as the most effective way when you're starting from a baseline of zero or, or minimal trust? Right. So it, it doesn't always feel good to say this, but it, it actually has less to do, in, in my experience, with my own individual expertise or that of the person whose trust I need to build and more to do with just finding something that we can have in common. Uh, you know, there's a ton of research out there that shows that like, Anytime you can find anything in common with another person, it kind of instantly builds rapport. There's one funny one that I read recently. I'll have to see if I can find the link and send it to you afterwards so you can include it in the, in the show notes if you want. But these researchers brought in participants to smell an American college football jersey in, in a box. And they had taken multiple uh, college football jerseys and soaked them in some material that made them stinky, made them smell like body odor. And then they put them in these boxes and they had participants come in and smell them one at a time and then rank them from like most smelly to least smelly. 
And what they found was that people ranked their own college uh, as being the least smelly. And they <laughs> often ranked the college that was perceived as being the, the uh, their closest rival as being like the most smelly, right? So like something as simple as like acknowledging like, hey, we went to the same university or we grew up in the same neighborhood or we're, yeah, I mean, even just like we're connected with the same people on LinkedIn, right? Are we, we have kids, we, we both have pets, right? We both like to go hiking, right? Like those seem like kind of trivial things, but we go back to that human experience that we talked about earlier, right? And like, you're creating now that human connection because people become unreasonable and they rely on themselves and their own biases when they're not having that human connection, right? When they're in kind of the throes of work, when they really are maybe thinking and operating a little bit more uh, robotically, right? And that, that's maybe a pessimistic way of, lo of looking at it. But I do think that anything we can do to remind them that like we're human, right? We're people. I have things in common with you and you have things in common with me, right? Just starting there, it makes a huge difference in, in the relationship and in, and in building trust. Tom, you seem to have some really keen insights into the human condition. And perhaps this has to do with your experience as a designer, and maybe it's to do with natural curiosity, or maybe it's an innate thing that you just have. I'm not sure. But I wanted to quote you again now, because you've said something else that I feel is really important for us to talk about with regards to our relationships with stakeholders. And that was the vast majority of people who appear to be unreasonable have a much simpler need than we give them credit for. They just want to be heard. That's it. Now, I listened to you describe when you were saying that how you once dealt with a stakeholder who brought up something in a design review that wasn't relevant at all to what you were there to discuss. And the way that you framed it, the way that you framed that conversation with that person, it was both, in terms of your tone, it was both direct, uh, but it was also disarming. You had, you had this way of helping them to see that they were off track and then to get the meeting back on track. You, you allowed them to be heard without agreeing with what they were saying. Have you always had this ability or is this something that you've had to purposefully practice? Um, I definitely have had to purposefully practice it. Certainly early in my career, I was not skilled at this at all. And I, and I, I have some very acute memories of mistakes that I made earlier in my career with even, you know, my own boss and my boss's boss that um, I look back on now, you know, with, with embarrassment. We won't, we don't talk about that anymore, right? But, you know, in that example that you describe, the, you know, the key there is to be sure that you're always validating the other person's perspective and even repeating it and rephrasing it back to them to demonstrate that you heard them, right? And the most common way that I have found to do that effectively is to lead with the yes, to start with the word yes. Like, yes, I understand where you're coming from. We did it this way for this reason. I'll be sure that the team follows up, right? Like that, that word yes really does have kind of like some magical quality of letting that person know that like, hey, they're valued, right? Yeah, I, I hear you. And you're not saying yes to the specific request, right? You're saying yes to them, 
as an individual to their participation in the process. You're saying yes to their energy and their excitement over being involved in the thing that you're working on, right? Like we, we, we do need our stakeholders to help influence the outcomes. Like, and we do need their support. And if you don't lead with that, yes, if you don't validate them or repeat back to them that you really understand where they're coming from, they're just going to say it in a different way, maybe louder, right? They're just going to repeat themselves. And eventually they'll just play that boss card because they don't, they feel like you're not listening, right? And so, yeah, anything you can do to demonstrate like, yeah, I, I hear you. I totally understand where you're coming from. And you're right. We do need to solve that problem. You know, maybe there's a different way to solve it. I, I, I completely agree with you that we need to solve that. That's not why we're here, you know, but I'll be sure that we follow up. Let, let, let's keep going with, with the meeting. And, and sometimes just doing that is, is all that it takes to help people move forward. Saying yes and it is something that, as you've said, is very disarming. It avoids open conflict. It helps people to feel heard. But is it being a little disingenuous sometimes? You know, are there situations where you actually disagree with a perspective that is being leveled at you quite forcefully and you should say, no, I don't agree with that. Right. That's a common question. And I, I would say that it would never be disingenuous if what you're saying yes to is them and their participation in your process and their collaboration right, with you, their ideation in, in that time. Of course, you shouldn't be saying yes with the purpose and intent of just turning it into a no, right? This isn't like, you know, the compliment sandwich where I compliment you and then I give you some negative feedback and then I compliment you again, right? Just to make you feel good mm. about it. People say through but, that. Yeah, but I, I think it's important to add here that, that leading with a yes is not only about disarming them and helping them you know, understand the framing of what they're asking us in the, in the wider context of what we're doing, but it's also to help keep us open and help us to not be biased in our own ideas. Because when you say yes to another person, you're now being vulnerable. You are opening yourself up to that risk. And you're saying, yes, I'm open to the possibilities here. I was leading a workshop in New York recently, and uh, we were talking about this principle. And one of the participants told me that he had been practicing this for a while and he went to a meeting where a stakeholder gave a suggestion that he thought was a terrible idea. And he led with the yes, with the intent of just trying to turn it into a no. But in the process of leading with a yes, he explained it to himself such that he realized it was actually a much better solution than the solution he had in mind. And if, and if he hadn't done that, he would have missed an opportunity to solve that problem in a way that would actually be better for both the customer and the business. So I don't think we can discount the possibility that we also have our own biases, right? We also have our own preferences that we're relying on. And this is meant to help, I think, both sides of that. It's really a tool for leaving, as you said, leaving open the possibility, but it's the possibility that you might be wrong about something, sure. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, poss the possibility that there's, there's more than one way to solve a problem. There's always mm. multiple alternatives. That's the reason we disagree on the specific solutions, because there's always another way we could come up with to solve it. So, you know, just objectively, 
it's it's simply not right to just say that that person's idea for solving it is wrong, right? Like we don't, unless we've tried it and, and actually have evidence of that, we don't know yet, right? It's just my idea versus yours. And of course, I have expertise as a designer that I poured into that solution. So in that way, I know better. But also in theory, my subject matter expert and the other people in the business, they also have valuable domain knowledge, information about the business and how things work that I don't have, right? The whole point is that we have to find the way to bring those two together. And if I go into these conversations truly believing that my designed solution is absolutely like the only and best way, well, then I'm missing a huge opportunity to actually build the right product for our customers. So following that thread along, Something else you've said, which there, perhaps there's some tension in there with what you've just said previously, and I'll quote you now. You've said, because design is visual, people, people being business stakeholders, believe that just because they have an opinion about design, that it means that their opinion is just as valid as that of the expert that they've hired. The same way we can choose the music that we like, but that doesn't make us a good musician. So stakeholders do have valuable domain knowledge, things that they know things we don't know, and we need that knowledge. But sometimes they have weird opinions, as we all do. So how do you avoid in, in that context the stakeholder as, I'm going to use an analogy here, perhaps it's a, it's a uh, flimsy one, but how do you avoid the audience from trying to be part of the band when it's in the context of some well-thought-out design work? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely opportunity for us to to demonstrate our own expertise, right? So let's presume for a moment, like we've built that trust that we talked about earlier, right? We're leading with the yes. Our stakeholder feels really good about the interaction, so we don't have we're not having challenges with like the relationship there necessarily. It's really just about like a subject matter expert thinks this, and I think this about the design. Then that opens an opportunity for us to really think about why we've made the decisions that we've made, right? Because it wasn't purely just our intuition. It, it isn't just that we are designers and think and intuit these things from, you know, the, the natural way in which things look. It may feel that way to us sometimes. And it's true that a lot of us are designers because we are more inclined to do that intuitively. But in reality, all of that intuition is based on some experience or learning um, or insight from earlier in our career or in our education. And so we need to be better at doing homework to go back to understand, right? Well, oh, you know, in my experience, we know that people look from left to right, top to bottom, and we designed this to make sure that they were tracking through the application in that way to get to that call to action button, right? Like just providing them either with anecdotal, you know, understanding, that we have from our own experience or ideally finding our own research and even third party information to back it up to say like, hey, in a common e-commerce checkout flow, right? This is the standard. And the reason that it's the standard is because of the data from this source over here, right? It doesn't have to be our own original research, but I, I, sorry, research. But I think anything that we can do to present ourselves as the experts, not just because we decided it looked better or would work better this way, but because we have some experience doing it, we have seen it work or not work, even if it wasn't, you know, from our own, our, our own work or our own jobs, right? We could have, you know, 
collected this information over the years from you know being exposed to the design industry in, in general. Those little snippets and insights are important for us to, to keep track of. And, and actually, a, a real simple thing that you can do is like when you stumble upon some really interesting research that is influential in your design work, just bookmark it. I mean, I sometimes with individual projects, I will keep all my reference material in a folder and know that like, you know, the, all these things, these studies, this article, this research, it was in this conference that I went to, right? It was influential on the decisions that I made on this project. And if a stakeholder asks me, hopefully I can go back and look that up and, and share it out. It may not even come to that, right? Sometimes them just understanding the idea that we have some reasoning, right? There, there is logic that underpins why we did what we did. Sometimes that alone is, is enough, especially if there's a high level of trust. Your personal practice and the practice that you've encouraged others to adopt and communicated through articulating design decisions, you have a very structured approach to describing for yourself before you even have to communicate it to somebody else why you did what you did. And I understand that there are three main questions that you favour here. The first is what problem does it solve? The second is how does this affect the user? And the third, and this is where we're getting down to brass tacks with design, is why is this better than the alternative? So it sounded like to me like if you've actually invested the time yourself to think that through and to write that down, which sounds like a lot of work, but it's it also sounds like it comes in incredibly handy when you do get challenged on certain points. You're going to have a ability to relatively quickly articulate the rationale behind the decision, which is great. But it's the third question that I wanted to dig into you deeper with here, which is, is uh, why is it better than the alternative? Because to me, that seems like you will have had to have considered the alternatives if you're going to have an answer to that before you arrive at the solution that you did. So how much effort needs to go into, maybe this is how long is a piece of string question, but how much effort needs to go into considering alternatives? Yeah. So it's going to depend on, you know, kind of the fidelity and importance of the meeting, right? Mm. So for bigger, more important meetings with, you know, lots of people or executives, yeah, it's going to be worth spending a lot more time exploring those alternatives and being sure I understand how my solution is the preferred one. For simple hallway conversations or impromptu, you know, Zoom calls, yeah, maybe I just have it in my head, right? Maybe I jotted down some notes on it. Maybe I have a section in my Figma file where I've got a couple of concepts that I kind of tried. Um, as long as I'm able to kind of verbally walk through them, then that's sufficient. But I, I found that you know, a lot of times we throw away those alternative solutions, right? And I think that part of this process is telling the story of how we got from point A to point B, right? A lot of times people will show up like, hey, here's the design. <clears throat> this is what we think the solution should be, right? You know, thumbs up, thumbs down. And they miss the opportunity to help the other people be, again, have visibility into our process and our thinking to understand where we started and where we ended up. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should put 10 solutions up on the whiteboard and have people make the Frankenstein of their dreams, right? Okay. We're not doing that. We absolutely should come to the table with like, this is our recommendation. You know, this is the one thing that we think is going to make the difference here for the customer and, and, and the business. 
And yet we also have to be able to tell them how we got there, right? In, in, with, with just enough information, like to help them get the context. But I think if you just go straight to like, you know, hey, here's the solution. This is what we think we should do. They're going to have the same instinct that you did at the beginning. They're going to come up with the same obvious idea that you and your team did at the very beginning, right? And so if you're able to say like, yes, I love that idea. We thought about that too. Now let me show you where we tried that and how it helped us get to where we are now, right? That makes a much more compelling case than having to be like, oh yeah, well, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think about that. And then now it's kind of, you know, back to the drawing board. Just hearing you say, yes, I, I love that. Again, it just, it, I was pretending I was your stakeholder there for a second. You know, I felt really good about it, even though you were saying, I've already thought about it. And you're just trying right. to catch up. But you are, you, yeah. you've actually, you've talked about this before and it was a huge light bulb moment for me, as in talked about it elsewhere, where you were, you were saying, you said something to the effect of, by the time we get into the room with our stakeholders and lay it all out, whatever it is that we're presenting, we've had the benefit of spending, you know, a week, a day, a month, however long it is, crafting what it is that they're about to see. And they haven't had any of that benefit or very little of it. And yet we assume or we treat them in such a way that we assume that they have the same knowledge coming into this meeting as we do. When it's clearly there's an asymmetry there in, in terms of the uh, in terms of the knowledge that we're holding and the cards that we're holding. Yeah. I, and that's why, like, just very quickly setting context at the beginning of any conversation is really important, right? I've been a stakeholder overseeing projects on multiple teams myself, and I'm a designer, and I even found it difficult to go from one design meeting to the next, right? And these design teams would just launch into this, like, you know, epic presentation of their work. And the first thing I'm thinking is like, wait a minute, what product are we even talking about now? Like, what did we talk? What did we talk about last week? Why is that still on the design? Because I thought I remembered we said we were going to remove that, right? Like, I'm just trying to catch up, right? And I don't think that we recognize that that's that that's the life of a lot of these stakeholders is going from one thing to the next, right? We have the opportunity to create the user experience of our meeting for the person who's coming into it, right? So if you put if you put yourself in their shoes and you think about like, if I were that person, what would I want? What would I need? What must it look like from their perspective to come in? That changes things, right? And you don't, you don't want to spend 20 minutes of a 30 or 45 minute meeting explaining the backstory, of course, right? That would be too long. It'd be too boring. They'd be like, come on, get to the point, right? You have to find that right balance of like, you know, Here's what we talked about last time. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. This is the kind of feedback we'd like to hear from you today. Any questions before we jump in, right? Like something super brief to just like bring them up to speed. And now we're going to tell the story. Yeah. So th this is what you meant when you said one of our jobs as designers is to align our needs with the expectations of our stakeholders. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we have to be able to see it from their perspective and just to have empathy for them, right? Like, I mean, it really is difficult going from one project to the next, to the next. I mean, sometimes our stakeholders, depending on where they sit in the business, they, they have access to information that we don't have, right? They came to some big meet, they, they know things about where the business is headed that we don't know. And the way they react to us might not have anything to do with our project at all, right? 
And I think sometimes we underestimate just how much is in their own mental capacity, right? We talk about reducing cognitive load on our users, right? We want to try our best to do the same thing for the, the, the people in our meetings. So let's stay on those meetings for a little while longer. And I'll quote you again. You've said, I think the big problem with design discussions is that we see the purpose of these meetings as being there to receive feedback when really we're there to facilitate a conversation about what the right solution to these problems are. So are you suggesting that the design itself, so if we have an artifact, whatever it may be, that that is actually simply a provocation to be used to understand how far or close to whatever we define as success we are. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of setting it up. And I mean, sometimes it's not wrong to deliberately design an offensive provocation, right? Something that is really going to get the conversation going. I think that if you see yourself as just being there to receive feedback, like I designed a thing, now you tell me what you think about it. That's just going to set you up for being defensive, right? And when you get defensive, you feel pushed on, right, by your stakeholders. And when you feel pushed on, you start to push back. And it just completely sets up the conversation in, in the wrong way from the get-go. But if you go into it with a mindset of like, okay, this person has a valuable perspective. My solution is one of many solutions. The purpose is for me to be a facilitator, to get the best out of all the people who are here to participate in this conversation. And that's not strictly about feedback as much as it is about insights, right? right? And feedback sounds like make it bigger, move it over here, drop it down there, right? That's, that's feedback. But insights are like, tell me what doesn't work about having it over there. Why, why do you think moving it over here is better than having it over there, right? Not focusing on the prescriptive feedback that they're providing and instead trying to uncover the problem that they're attempting to solve. Because most people, most people aren't thinking in terms of problems and, and solutions. They're just going straight to the solution. They see something visual. They think they know that if they move it over here, that's going to solve something for them, but they don't know what that is. And so if we see our job as to help them uncover that, then we'll be more successful because it opens up the possibility that there are other ways we can solve for it than just their suggestion, right? And they will see that too in the course of the conversation. Yeah. So just the same way that our customers or users can't really articulate their problems without us asking the right questions, our yeah. stakeholders can't either. Yeah, absolutely. And they... They probably have more exposure to product processes and they understand things like user research, right? So they're, they probably have some terminology and guardrails there that, you know, most of our customers maybe don't have. So that should be an advantage for us too, though, right? Because now we have a shared vocabulary, right? We have, we have, we already have a construct and kind of a framework within to, uh, to work with them on, yeah. I'm curious about your framing of the role of design within the organization. Now you've framed it, and again, I'll quote you, you've said, we've got to see our roles as one of service because serving people forces us to see the perspectives of another person. Designers are on a team to serve. 
perhaps I take a little issue with this notion of service. It's not that I necessarily disagree, though. I don't want to come across too strong here in how I feel. But it's just this nature of being subservient that I suppose that the term service may communicate. And maybe that just rubs up against, you know, clearly some of my own perhaps limiting beliefs about design and its role in the world. So what is it or to whom should we be in service of? What is it behind this service notion that you feel is important for designers to connect with and to understand? Yeah. Before I answer that, I, I think it is important to touch on this idea that it definitely not intended to communicate a sense that we are subservient or are not equal or are less than. Certainly design and you know, research and product are equal partners in you know, creating these solutions. And we absolutely should have the confidence in that when we go into these conversations, right? The concept of seeing ourselves and uh, taking on that attitude of service is really about humility. And if we go back to some of our earlier threads on, you know, wanting to eliminate our own bias and leading with a yes and validating the other person, right? That's where this all kind of comes together to connect. If you, if you go into these conversations believing like, I'm here to help them be successful, right? In their role and in the company, right? That's a very different attitude from, you know, I'm here to push design and make this a design-led organization or process or product, or even my own idea and my own agenda, right? It's a totally different thing. But I, I, do, I, do, I do believe that when you position yourself to set up someone else for success, then I think you will find success more easily just simply as a byproduct of that. Because when our partners in the business see us making them successful, they will naturally want to do things that help us be successful too. And in fact, a lot of our businesses are set up that way anyway, right? My partners are incentivized to achieve their own you know, KPIs or OKRs for the product. So anything that I can do in service of that will make them happy and successful. Well, I'm also measured on those same things. And in fact, one of the things I'm measured on is how effective my partners in the business believe I am at working with them, right? I mean, one of the number one ways that we evaluate people in a lot of organizations now is by doing, you know, these 360 feedback loops where we're asking partners in the business, like, what was your, what's your, been your experience working with Tom or someone else, right? So when people know that, they can come to me with a problem and I'm game to help them figure that out. It means that I now have permission to go to them when I need something too, right? Like there's a reciprocity in our relationship that we're both there to help each other be successful. And it's just harder to accomplish that if you don't see yourself in that role, if you're going in with, with a different intent. It's almost like you're going in with an intent to invest in them more than you are going in with an intent to withdraw something or extract something. It's a much more additive, virtuous framing of the relationship. It's also making me think of, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get the adage quite right, but maybe you can connect with this. There's a saying, something to the effect of, if, you know, if, if money is what you're pursuing for the sake of money, 
it's going to be more difficult to achieve that than if you pursue something for the sake of itself and then the money will mm. come. And again, I right. didn't quite frame that correctly, but it's almost like if you want design to have influence, don't pursue design influence directly. Help to help other people to achieve what they're there to achieve in the context of the organization, and then that will make it easier for design to have influence. Yeah, that's right. Right. So two, two examples from my career that I think demonstrate this well. One was um, a person on my team who met with their product owner and their product owner came to the meeting with uh, the designer and the, the engineering like developer lead with a deck that was basically like, hey, here's, here's where we're headed. Here's what we're going to do. This is the vision and this is the strategy and these are the things. And my designer came to me after that meeting and was really like down and was like, you know, I just, I don't know why they didn't involve me and ask me, right? Like we have all these insights. We've talked about strategy together. It just feels like they totally left me out and they wrote up the strategy all on their own and then just told me what it was, right? And that's that's a common feeling for designers that that product or even engineering is just like telling us what to do, right? And I told this person, I said, well, did you go back to them and and ask if like you could still like have some influence or help them like tweak it? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't. I was like, well, did you have ideas for it? Well, yeah, I did. Why don't you go do that and see what they say? And they came back the following week and said, oh yeah, they were totally open to it. They loved that I wanted to jump in and it wasn't final yet. And they were just, they were trying to share it out with me specifically to like get my own perspective, right? But that would have been a missed opportunity, right? Instead, it Instead, it's like they were waiting for a product owner to come to them and say, oh, designer, please come and help me, right? But instead, we have to find these opportunities when they're presented to us, right? So that's, that's the first one that, uh, that, that comes to mind. Are you saying that people can't read our minds? Uh, they, can't, they can't read our minds. And I, and I don't think we should assume that they're deliberately trying to leave us out of the conversation, Right. I think anytime someone comes to you uh, with an idea or with a suggestion, even if it's in a slide deck, that doesn't make it permanent. And it's a great opportunity for you to jump in and say, hey, what did you think about this, right? So that's the first example. The second example that comes to mind is, is more generalized. There's not one specific example here, but I have made it a habit in, in this line of thinking that I, I'm here to serve my partners in the business. Um, I will frequently offer to help people with their uh, slide decks in our business for other meetings, especially my partners in product. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, for, the, for them and for their benefit, um, it's much easier and faster for me to design a slide and to make it look really, really nice uh, for if I do it for them than if they do it you know, themselves, right? And they're always appreciative, right? Like, oh my God, thank you so much. This was such a huge like weight off my shoulders. Like they can just give me the outline and I can make a few slides, right? And it looks really nice. But selfishly for me, it often gives me access to the content of meetings that I'm not invited to, right? <laughs> meetings that I didn't even know about, right? And so just as often, I'm helping someone with a slide deck and they think I'm doing them a favor, but really I'm looking at some stuff and I'm going, oh, wow, that's interesting. This is coming. And now I have a conversation point with my product partner and I can be like, hey, I see you're talking about this and that meeting. What about this? Oh yeah, that's right. We should add that, right? That's design influencing where we're going as a, as a, as a product. And again, 
if I waited for someone to just come along and invite me into that process, it would never happen, right? Or it would not happen nearly as often as I would like it to, right? But if I can find ways to be influential, to find the influence, then I'll be much more successful. And one of the ways of doing that is seeing myself as being there to serve other people and make them successful. Because by trying to make my product partner successful, I'm successful as a byproduct because now I have access to information, to people, to meetings that I didn't have otherwise. Yeah, structural influence is not the only way that you can achieve influence. That's right. Yeah, you're making yeah. me recall a conversation I had I think at the end of last year with Jesse James Garrett, and he almost, not to the word, but in, in another story articulated the same point uh, just as finely. So I think it's, a, it's another key insight today. Tom, I'm mindful of time and I also wanted to acknowledge the work that you put into articulating design decisions, which is now I think seven or just over seven years old. It's sold over 36,000 copies. It's been translated into seven languages and it's now in its second edition. What surprised you the most from bringing that book into the world? Well, I mean, I, I never anticipated that it would you know, be as influential as it appears to have been. At the time when I wrote it, um, it seemed like a nice idea. I, I felt like articulating design decisions was a fairly obvious thing that all of us have to do every single day. I just happened to have kind of developed some structure around how I articulated design decisions and wanted to share it, you know, with the community. I always thought it would be kind of like a nice line on my resume and it would sell a few copies and it would be like, oh, that was a fun project to work on. I'm really glad that I did that. And I, I never anticipated all the messages that I would get from people. I mean, I had people tell me that they got a job, they got a promotion, they you know, led with a yes for the first time in a meeting and it just completely changed their conversations. I've had people tell me that it totally turned their careers around and I'm honored, quite frankly, I, I, I wanted to help people. Um, I hoped that it would. I didn't anticipate that it would help people quite to the extreme that it, it appears to have. And so in that way, I'm super humbled to think that something that I feel like I was good at or learned to become good at that I could put out there and share with the world has helped other people, right? I mean, there's no, I think, greater feeling than to know that you've contributed something to the world. And if I have helped a few people in their careers along the way, then then that's great. I'm super, super happy. Well, you certainly have. And I have one final question before we bring the show down to a close and not to finish on a somber note, but it is that you've observed a sad reality when it comes to designers who aren't able to articulate those design decisions. So people that haven't yet picked up a copy of your book or heard you speak about this. And in your own words, you've said, and I'll quote you one last time, sometimes people are just nervous about what it would mean to speak up and communicate their thoughts. There are some really, really talented designers whose work we will never see. So in the spirit of encouraging those people to find their voice, what words of wisdom or perhaps encouragement can you share with them? Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to find a mentor, uh, an accountability partner, I would say, that can really help you in this area because it, it is important. And being able to find that voice and to develop confidence in this area 
really will make the difference in your career. We want to see your work, right? We want your work to be influential in the world. And I know that when we all started out in design, we thought that we were going to create things that would just kind of automatically go out and change the world. And it turns out there's this huge barrier um, when it comes to getting the support that we need inside organizations. So that first step is recognizing that, acknowledging that that is a part of our reality, that we have to have that in order for our work to be influential. And so it's just as important for us to put the time and effort into that as we do into the craft of design, right? We, we have to put maybe just as much effort into uh, developing skills in this area to make sure that the work uh, and the skills that we have in the craft is actually going to be able to influence um, our customers' lives. Tom, this has been such a great conversation. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you for taking the time to share your stories and insights with me today and also for taking the time seven years ago, and I know you've done the second edition as well, which would have taken some time too, to distill them into your book, Articulating Design Decisions, so that the rest of us don't have to learn everything the hard way. Great. Well, thanks again for having me. You're most welcome. It was definitely my pleasure. And Tom, if people want to keep up with what you're doing, any new um, developments or announcements or contributions that you're making to the community, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, so I'm active on LinkedIn and Twitter and to a lesser extent on Instagram. Um, I'm the only Tom Griever, so you can just Google my name and it's pretty easy to, to find me, but feel free to you know look me up, add me on LinkedIn or Twitter. TomGriever.com is my website. You can uh, find a way to get in touch with me there as well. Cool. Thank you, Tom. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Tom. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX, design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe, and also tell someone else, maybe just one person, if you feel that they would get value from this episode and the others, tell them about the show, send them the link. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just search for Brendan Jarvis. There's also a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, Keep being brave. Hey.